Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, a very familiar passage, verses 1 to 10. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have it up on the screen for you. Uh, if this is your first time here at UCB, um, I want you to know that we don't typically do sermons like this. Uh, this is a topical sermon. Why are we doing a topical sermon? It's because today is a very special day, not because it's Halloween, because it is Reformation Day. Reformation Day. This is the day signifying the start of our Protestant tradition 504 years ago. And you may be asking, why do we celebrate Reformation Day? The answer is because I'm just a big geek. Uh, here, here's my, my copy of uh, the 95 Theses here. I did not get Martin Luther's uh, autograph on this, unfortunately. If you have that hookup, let me know. Uh, I showed this to our children's uh, service earlier today. That's why I have it up here still. Um, here's why we don't celebrate Reformation Day. We're not doing this so that you can get all your ammunition and you can go and stick it to your Catholic friends and argue with them and like defeat them with all these truth bombs I'm about to get you. Don't do that, okay? Don't. Um, the Catholic Church today, there are still things that we disagree on, uh, important things even, uh, but the Catholic Church is very, very different than it used to be in 1517 in large part because of the Reformation that um, Martin Luther kicked off. Uh, but don't use this as, as a, an opportunity to argue with your Catholic friends and family members, please. Um, the reason that we are celebrating Reformation Day is because Reformation Day was the day when we rediscovered what had been lost, the gospel. And you know what happens if you and I forget the gospel, if our church or churches stop focusing on the gospel, we are in really, really big trouble. And so we take this as an opportunity to rediscover again this morning this familiar, life-changing thing we call the gospel. What is the gospel? Stand and I'll read to you the gospel from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you follow the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But... Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us 
in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Lord, thank you for this. This is unbelievable good news. And we confess that our hearts are at times cold to this message, hard to this message. We're bored by this message. And we don't want that to be the case with the time we have this morning. So would you please, by your spirit, make our hearts tender so that we can hear this good news of the gospel. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, the Tonight Show is like a late-night television program in the United States. The most familiar host, at least in my lifetime, has been Jay Leno. And he would have this segment on The Tonight Show where he would go from the studio into the street and he would interview the common man or the common woman about common knowledge. So there's this one time that he's doing this interview, and the topic is the Ten Commandments. And he goes and he asks people, can you name one of the Ten Commandments? And this was the most popular answer. God helps those who help themselves. That was the answer. Now, if you've been joining us for our midweek devotional at 8 p.m., when we study the Ten Commandments, you'll know that that is not in there. Um, if you are familiar with the Bible, if you've read through the Bible, you will know that that message is not in there. If you have studied church history, you will notice that that message keeps coming up over and over and over again. That people really do believe that the central message of Christianity is that God helps those who help themselves. Why has that happened? First, I think it's because of our hearts. We really like to feel like we bring something to the table. It's a human thing to want to be in control of your own spiritual outcomes, right? But one of the reasons that has been so popular is because of a man named Pelagius. Pelagius was a 4th and 5th century arch-nemesis of Augustine, and he was Augustine's arch-nemesis because he propagated that message. God helps those who help themselves. Actually, the way he said it is that we can work our way up to God. We can reach Him. We can get Him ourselves. And the church said, hey, Pelagius, that's heresy. And they were right. But the church forgot. And this message creeped back in so that by the 12th century, you have another man named Peter Lombard explain how it is exactly that we help ourselves so that God will help us. And there was this designed intricate system of the sacraments that if you wanted to get to heaven, if you wanted to help yourself, well, then you need to sit down with a priest and you need to do confession and you need to help yourself with the sacramental system, baptism and confirmation and holy communion and penance and extreme unction. Well, that message continues for a few hundred more years until we get to the 16th century, the year 1517. That bad theology mixes with some corruption in God's church, and boom, the stage is set for the Protestant Reformation because the church is selling indulgences now. What is that all about? 
Well, the church had this funding problem, right? They wanted to build these big, beautiful cathedrals all over the world that we still enjoy today. And also they had this holy war, war that they were fighting to beat back the spread of Islam, but they didn't have the money to fund those things. So what did they do? They appealed to people's fear. Fear of what? Hell. Purgatory which in those days is where the church thought most people, average Joes like you and me, we probably went to purgatory for some undefined amount of time. But you, you could help yourself buy your way out of purgatory sooner by reaching into your pocket and purchasing yourself some indulgences. Actually, you could even purchase some indulgences for your dead family members who are probably in purgatory Right now, you were able to help people who couldn't help themselves so that God would help them. And so it wouldn't be unusual for you to walk into your church one day in 1517, and a guy named Johann Tetzel steps up to the pulpit, and he says this. This is what he said. Why are you standing there? Run for the salvation of your souls. Don't you hear the voice of your wailing dead parents and others who say, have mercy upon me, have mercy upon me, because we are in severe punishment and pain. For this, you could redeem us with a small alms, and yet you do not want to do so. What were those small alms? Indulgences. Think of indulgences this way. When you're speeding and you get pulled over by the police, you get a speeding ticket, right? You don't get thrown into jail immediately, but you have to pay this fine. And so it was through penance. If you did something wrong, you sit down and you confess it, and you had to pay God a fine. Of course, you can't pay that directly to God, so you paid it to God's church. And it turned out, unfortunately, that the more you paid, the better God would treat you the sooner you and your relatives could get out of purgatory and into heaven with God. Or in the pithy saying of Tetzel himself, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. It's a pretty brilliant marketing campaign, actually. And it's pretty destructive. And Martin Luther heard enough teaching like this that his soul, his soul was stirred to do a radical thing. So October 31st, 19, or 1517, it happened. The next day was November, 4, November 1st. It was All Saints Day, much like tomorrow here is All Saints Day. Only this year in Wittenberg, Germany, it was going to be an extra special All Saints Day. People were going to come from all over the region because in Wittenberg, there was this massive, newly acquired exhibit of relics on display. And so Luther knew that they would come and that they would bow and that they would pray and that they would reach into their pocket and they would pay to eliminate hundreds, if not thousands of years in purgatory. So he pulled out his pen and he started writing the 95 Theses, 95 Statements. And he went to the door, Castle Church in Wittenberg, and he nailed those 95 Theses off 
onto the door, and he started this revolution called the Protestant Reformation. Only he didn't try to start a revolution, really. He just wanted to have a debate because he wanted to say, hey, church, I think we're getting something really important wrong about the gospel. Can we talk about it? Church, I think we're getting something wrong about the gospel. In fact, one of his thesis statements was this, the church's true treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is that the church's true treasure? This is your outline this morning. It's because the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us how dead people are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's rediscover it this morning. The starting point for Luther was, hey, we need to rediscover this gospel, which means we need to be honest about the condition of our own hearts and souls. And what the scriptures say is that we are, without Jesus, spiritually dead. And so the gospel is this radical moment when God makes spiritually dead people alive. Now, that's a tough teaching, isn't it? Like, we 21st century people like to think that we're basically good and okay and, like, full of potential and all this, but but the Scriptures are clear, no. We're actually spiritually dead. And if there's going to be spiritual life there, God is going to have to put it there. You and I think maybe we're just spiritually dormant. Um, I've told you this story before, but when I was a child... My middle brother, Ben, and I had a pet, a beloved hamster named Skipper. All right, Skipper was a uh, pretty rambunctious rodent, and I can still hear in my head the squeaking noise he would make on his little hamster wheel at 2 a.m. and keep us awake all night long. We loved Skipper. He was a lot of fun, but all pets die, right? And one day I went into uh, my room to feed Skipper, and I found my little furry friend right there, cold, stiff, dead. I was totally devastated. My first experience with death, I picked up my little friend, and I ran downstairs to my mom's bedroom, and I was wailing at her, Mommy, Skipper's dead! Skipper's dead! Here's something you need to know about my mother. Some moms would take that as a teachable moment. It's like, come here, let's, you know, we need to talk about life and death, and we just need to, you know, we need to tackle this. This is a good learning opportunity for you. Not my mom. My mom's like, you know what? There ain't no little furry thing that's gonna make my boy cry. So she runs upstairs, she comes back downstairs, and she's holding paper towel and she's holding a plastic straw and she grabs stiff little skipper and she wraps him up in that paper towel and starts to do her hands like this and then I kid you not she opens his dead little hamster mouth and sticks the straw in there and starts to give skipper mouth to mouth through that straw inflating his stiff little belly with her own air Then after that didn't work, she grabbed her hair dryer. She turned it on high heat and started to heat that little baby up with her hair dryer. And I kid you not, twitch, twitch, 
twitch, and before we knew it, Skipper was alive. My brother and I were sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, my mother is a miracle worker. We just witnessed a real-life resurrection. Skipper's alive. Now, we later learned that when hamsters get cold, they hibernate, and that, well, he had hibernated. The Apostle Paul says we're not spiritually hibernating, okay? We're not. We really are spiritually dead. Verses 1 and 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He's talking about Satan himself. He's saying, look, we have to be honest with our starting point. Our hearts without Jesus are spiritually dead hearts. And we cannot help ourselves when we are spiritually dead. A dead person can do nothing to make themselves alive. If there is going to be spiritual life, God is going to have to take the straw and breathe it into us himself. God himself, the source of life, is going to have to put life into us from the outside in. This is the theological category uh, of regeneration new birth. That's what's happening here, Paul says. Look at verses 4 and 5. Paul gives you all this bad news about spiritual dead hearts, and then he says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. God is responsible. Wherever there is spiritual life, God has put it there. God gives people who had dead hearts like you and me life. Why? Because of his great love for us. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's the starting point of the gospel. This message that spiritually dead people have been saved by grace. Paul mentions grace three times in this passage. Verse 5, what I just read, he says, it's by grace you have been saved, even though you were dead. It's by grace you have been saved. He doesn't stop with spiritual life. He actually says, no, you get the riches of Jesus Christ too. This is what happened on uh, the cross where our spiritual poverty was exchanged with Jesus' spiritual Riches, verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And then he mentions grace again in verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Grace, grace, grace. What is grace? Grace is when you get what you don't deserve. This passage lays it out really clearly, right? Objects of wrath, your translation may say. This just says it like it is, deserving of wrath. And what is it that Jesus deserves? Divine favor eternally. This is what is so radical about the grace of God. Because objects deserving wrath get the divine favor of Jesus. Because on the cross, 
Jesus exchanged the wrath that you and I deserved with his own favor, with his own righteousness. And so you and I, as we trust in him, get God's eternal favor. For Martin Luther, this is what he called the great exchange. Wrath for favor. It's the great exchange. And it tells people like you and me that God will never love us more or less than he already does in his son Jesus. Really, he'll never love us more or less than he already does in his son Jesus. Do you see how that flies in the face of God helps those who help themselves? We can't help ourselves, right? We just can't. Even if we could recognize the wrath that we deserve, we couldn't do anything about it. If we're going to be saved, God is going to have to do it. And so the reformers like Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, a bunch of others, they said, you know, this is going to have to be, big word, a monergistic work of God. Monergistic just means one-sided. So this is not synergism, right? This is not we reach up and God reaches down and we meet in the middle. We feel great about this teamwork. Yay, team. We saved ourselves with your help, God. God's like, yay, you saved yourself with my help. No, it's not that. We are so helpless that God must reach all the way down and do all of the work for us. Here's why this matters. Back then, corrupt church context, this story of God helps those who help themselves, people were convinced that they just needed to reach higher and higher and higher through indulgences, and the sacramental system. They just had to reach high enough so that God would notice how high our hand is reached, and then he would do the rest of the work. It's really, really dangerous. First of all, because it minimizes the finished full work of Jesus on the cross. But it also turns us into self-righteous, paranoid maniacs. Because in that system, God becomes a slave master who just demands more, 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 more. Reach higher, reach higher, do more, give more, pay more, be more. Which puts us in a precarious position, right? Because either we have got to become self-deceived, arrogant people who get to boast about how good we are and how high we reach and how much God loves us because we are so awesome or... We become insecure, terrified people who are never really sure that God loves us or that we're actually saved. God doesn't want us to be either of those things. Look at the tenses of the verbs in verse 6. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. God is saying, you know how good I am to save you completely? We can call it past tense. This is how real the connection is when your faith is in Jesus. You are united with Jesus, not just getting Jesus' stuff, but belonging to Jesus with Jesus. So much so that when we say Jesus is living the resurrected eternal life right now at the right hand of the Father, it is as if you and I are right there with him experiencing full salvation. Sure, we have our issues and we're still here right now, but this is the already not yet. It's a done deal, so much so God can describe it 
in the past tense, and it's all a gift. It's all a gift. It's not a paycheck. You work for a paycheck. You sweat and you bleed for a paycheck. Salvation is not a paycheck. You don't deserve it. It's a gift. All you do is you stick your hands out and you say, oh, I need this so bad, and you receive it. And then you live your life in grateful response to it. Salvation is a gift. We get what we don't deserve. And the church had lost that message, the message of the gospel. That tells us that spiritually dead people are saved by grace. How? Through faith. How are we connected to Jesus? It's through faith. Luther was that paranoid maniac who wasn't sure if he was really saved. In Luther's mind, he thought that God was this eternally abusive parent who was just waiting to say, okay, good job. But anytime we did a bad job, he was just going to smash us with his wrath, curse us. And so Luther tried, he tried, he wrote this, if anyone could earn heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. And yet he knew that it wasn't enough. He wasn't good enough. He still felt dirty. He still felt shameful and unworthy of heaven. And you know what that did in his heart? He hated God for it. He hated God for it. It's mind-blowing, but the tiniest phrase in the New Testament changed Luther's heart and changed world history as we know it. The tiniest phrase is the reason you and I are sitting here having this conversation. Luther was a uh, professor at the university in Wittenberg. And he taught through books of the Bible. And he taught through Romans on a regular basis. And every time he got to Romans chapter 1, verse 17, he found himself having an existential crisis because of this little phrase. For in the gospel, here's the phrase, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so Luther labored over that passage, the righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? What, it, what does this mean? This is what he wrote. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners, threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with fierce and troubled conscience. I beat upon St. Paul at that place, most ardently desiring what St. Paul wanted. What do you want from me, Paul? What do you want from me, God? Martin, the answer is faith faith. It's all about faith. What is faith? Faith is not this thing that you finally have enough of or this thing that you just need to have more of. To borrow from another pastor, define faith this way. Faith is a transfer of trust. Transferring our trust from what I think will save me to what will actually save me which is the finished work of Jesus. Here's how it happened with Luther. 
when you're forced to study the Bible time and time and time again, as he was with Romans over and over and over again, one day the light bulb went on. Ah, oh, I've been missing the context of this phrase, the righteousness of God. I've missed the context this whole time. This is what I mean. You turn over to Romans chapter 4. And Paul is talking about the faith of Abraham. And there's this one word that shows up 11 times in that section. And the word is counted, as in something is counted to someone else, where something is credited to someone else, as in to Abraham was credited a righteousness that was not his. Okay? Then Luther goes back to Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and this phrase, the righteousness of of God, and he reads it in Greek. Greek is what the New Testament is originally written in. Okay, he reads the word in, in, in Greek as opposed to Latin. Latin is what in those days most of the biblical interpretation was based on. And he sees this Latin word, righteousness, and it comes from the word justificare, which means to make righteous. And so the church in their own interpretation, it made sense. They had this system of the sacraments to make yourself righteous. Like, this was how you helped yourself. Only the issue is, that wasn't what the Greek word, the original word, meant. The original word in Greek is dikaiosune, and it means to be counted as righteous. Do you see the difference? I realize this is very geeky. But the difference changes world history. The Latin word is active. The Greek word is passive. The Latin word was all up to you and me and our participation in the system. Help yourself. And the Greek word was passive. It's all up to God. And Luther realized it. Oh, this isn't about me working on myself to make my righteousness look like God's righteousness. This is about God's righteousness becoming my righteousness. How? Through faith. By trusting that God has earned all of the righteousness he demands from me. He's earned it through Jesus and given it to me. And I just receive it. I just get it. Even though I don't deserve it. It's a gift. It's not a transaction. When Luther realized this, this is what he wrote. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. It changed the way he read the whole Bible and the way for 500 years many people have been reading the Bible. It was actually the way Augustine had been reading the Bible. We had just lost it over time and through corruption. It changed everything. This meant that God wasn't the angry, demanding, abusive parent-like God who was waiting for Martin to mess up so that he could zap him with lightning, so he could punish him. No, this was a God who was full of grace and mercy, who isn't going to punish deserving sinners. Why? Because he has punished his son, Jesus, instead. And so all people like you and me and Martin do is we receive the righteousness of God that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. We transfer our trust 
to our own broken morality, to Jesus and his perfected morality, his righteousness. It's not a transaction. In fact, it's a lot more like a relationship. Faith is a trusting relationship. Um, This is why this term, the priesthood of the believers, uh, gained popularity. That just means, and this is why Christians are always talking about having a personal relationship with God through Jesus. It's a relationship. I don't need someone to broker the relationship with me like a fancy priest who alone is able to dispense grace here and there however he pleases, pay for it or receive it or not. I don't need that because through Jesus Christ, I have a mediator and I can relate to God directly through Jesus, my Savior. It's a vital living relationship. The sacraments are great, but they're all a part of nurturing a relationship. They're not a transaction. You're not paying God to get something from Him. It's all about a relationship. And in that relationship, if you are trusting in Jesus right now, the Father looks at you right now, all your mess, all your problems, and He says, oof, look at my son. Look at my daughter with whom I am well pleased. Because Jesus gave that to you. Is that a relationship that you have? Or are you stuck in the transaction? Are you stuck in the paranoia and the insecurity or the false self-righteousness, the pretending? You need the relationship. And we at this church are at your service if you want to talk more about that. We want you to be in relationship with God through Jesus. Here's a picture I want to show you. Uh, It's of a Reformation monument in Geneva, Switzerland. I'd really like to visit it sometime. Uh, On it, it's got a few different reformers from the Protestant Reformation. And up there, written on it, is this phrase in Latin. After the darkness, light. After the darkness, light. What it's capturing is, after the darkness of the medieval church... And all of the insecurity and striving and failing and transaction and paranoia that came with that, after all of that darkness, light, the light of Jesus, which shines on us, the beauty of Jesus, to know that we are beloved children of our God. That is the gospel. It is not a message of God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves, actually. It's a message of how spiritually dead people are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us to remember that message and for it not to grow stale in our hearts or in our world or in our families, Lord. Make it alive in us. Pour it through us, Lord. This is a message that changes world history and changes people. Um, It's a message, indeed, uh, that alters our eternity, uh, our meaning, our fullness, our joy. So would you take us over with the message? We take over our church with that message and our city and our world with that message of Jesus so that people would see how good and loving and beautiful you are. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.